think exactly the same way we do, or are they just, their motivation is just based on food? It's really not rocket science. Dogs are really, you know, a stomach with two ears and a tail. What do you think? Uh, they think like us, kind of, but some parts of their brain don't, because they're like, mailman, invader. <laughs> that is a problem. I generally have neutral feelings about the mailman, but Dooley uh, is absolutely ballistic when it comes to the mailman. He reacts very poorly, kind of an insane way. Yeah, it's like a mad dog. Yep. I adore having a dog around, and I am inspired by their boundless joy, but I can't relate to it. You're listening to Rome Schooled, and this is our animal show. It's actually the first of three shows about animals. This one is about the animals that we know the best, or so we think, our pets, dogs, and even cats. We talked to this scientist who's a cat behavior specialist. Oh, yeah. She was pretty nice. We're a cat person. People tend to think the cats are motivated by these mysterious, nefarious, or predatory instincts. But she said that they're actually motivated by what? Uh, attention by humans, except for one little oddball. We had originally tried using just food, but they just weren't approaching the bowl. The majority of those cats preferred social interaction. Hear and attend and listen, for this befell and behappened and became and was, O oh my best beloved, when the tame animals were wild. The dog was wild, and the horse was wild, and the cow was wild, and the sheep was wild, and the pig was wild, as wild as wild could be, and they walked in the wet wild woods by their wild loans. Um, we have pets and everything, but... Why did we get pets? If pets never existed, maybe where would we be now? Good, good question. What do you think the first pet was? Wolf. Dog. All the wild animals gathered together where they could see the light of the fire a long way off, and they wondered what it meant. Wild dog lifted his wild nose and smelled the smell of roast mutton and said, I will go up and see and look and say, for I think it is good. Cat, come with me. Nenny, said the cat, I am the cat who walks by himself, and all places are alike to me. I will not come. What, what is a pet? What do you guys think the difference between a pet and a domestic animal that's um, not a pet? I think pets are more attached to people. In what way? If they come up to you, they're not scared off if you touch them. They're company. What about people who keep pigs as pets? Uh, interesting thing. Do they eat them for dinner? Does that make it not a pet if they do? Well, it would be a pet for the time that they didn't eat it, in my vision. And then when they eat it, it ceases to be a pet? Yeah, because it's not alive anymore. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting uh, question. Okay. And then, but the problem is, if you're going to kill one of your animals, it's hard not to get attached to it. What are some things that determine whether or not we're attached to an animal in that way? If you want to kiss it every time it looks at you in a pleading way, that would be... Connecting with yes, it? Yes, connecting with... By kissing. Your pet, yes. Well, what if it's, uh, what if you keep a pet turtle? Maybe, depends how big the space is where the turtle is. Like, if it's just going around your house or if it's in a cage. So, cohabitation. Yeah. So, tell me, you're the one who asked the question. When is a pet not a pet anymore and, for example, a meal in general? 
I think it's not really a pet if you eat it because pets are supposed to keep you company. They're not supposed to give you food. So when Dooley dies, could we eat him? No! That would be not honoring him. Well, maybe it would be. I don't know. It just does sound preposterous to say. We'll explore this eating thing, eating of pets, eating of animals, in the next episode about animals. But for this episode, pets. How did we get to pets? And why does it continue to be such a big part of our society? Who would know better than Sharon Harmon, the executive director of the Oregon Humane Society? Okay. Where do you think we would be without pets? You know, life without pets is black and white. And when you have a dog or a cat or a rabbit in your life, it's like color and flowers and smells and joy. It's like the sunshine. It really is. Otherwise, life's just pretty sterile, boring, and lonely. just and lonely. You're exactly right. I couldn't imagine a world without animal animal friends in it. Okay. We have a 13-and-a-half-year-old dog named Dooley, who, whose name was Dooley when we met him at Dog Day in the Park, uh, went back when the beavers used to play, and your people brought down oh, some really? animals. And oh, I adopted him. I adopted a 105-pound <laughs> Great Dane and brought Dooley home to their mom. And what did she think and of she that? And like, whose dog is that? <laughs> you weren't alive. You're speculating, first of all. But Mons- the urban legend continues. <laughs> and you- your mom wants to keep your dad fully apprised of that. <laughs> and he's the best friend I've ever had. Uh, and he's, he's still with us. He's almost 14 years old. His name is still Dooley. Her name was Julie, so that was another complication. It was Dooley and Julie in the same At the time, I had raised two dogs that both lived to be 17 years old. One of them died, and a few months later, I found myself, almost without thinking at all, coming home with Dooley. See, dogs get to me, straight to my heart. Cats, not at all. Not usually. I'm going to ask some people why this is a little later. What's amazing to me about the Humane Society is that we, as a society, have done some good in the animal world and made some progress, thanks to people like Sharon. I read a sign on the way here that said we keep the pets as long as necessary until they find their perfect home. So if you don't euthanize them, how do you keep the shelter from overflowing? That's a really good question. Uh, we, We chose a different path some time ago. In the year 2000, we decided to be the responsible pet owner that we ask everyone in this community to be, and that is don't take in any more animals than you can care for. Previously, shelters would take in everything that came to their door, and then because there's only so much room at the end, some of them didn't get to stay very long. But we decided to be the model for how, how our community should care for pets. So we only take in as many as we can care for. Um, and then when one's adopted, then we can take in another one. Where do most of them come from? So over 60% of our animals come from other shelters. And that's a strategic move on our part to target the animals whose lives are most at risk. So if they're in a private home, there may be some urgency to find a new home. There may be something tragic going on. But most of the time, people have a few days. They have a week. They have other resources. And if you give them time to think about those other resources, like here's how this plays out. Well, we have room for your dog. Could you come in next Tuesday? And by next Tuesday, they probably remembered their uncle said they liked the dog. 
their husband got over being mad that he ate his shoes or, <laughs> or they've come up with other resources. So that time delay sometimes surfaces opportunities they didn't think they had or they got over the issue. Um, but animals in other shelters very often don't have that latitude. We also take in animals that are part of cruelty cases. So as a law enforcement agency for the state of Oregon, uh, we sometimes seize animals from abuse and neglect. And so we balance those resources, we think, to help the most animals in the community with the sheltering services that we offer. People think shelters are the animal shelters of the past, where we only held them three days, or we did not have three the resources. Yeah, isn't that surprising? And, you know, in the 70s and 80s, really, that's all we could do for them because there were so many coming through. But we've, we've really solved pet overpopulation in our community. We solved dog overpopulation decades ago, and we're almost there with cats. Wow. Isn't that surprising? How have we, as a society, solved this problem? Well, the solutions came about differently for dogs and for cats. So the strategy for dogs was really about their value as companions. The strategy for cat is all about spay and neuter. About it's spay and neuter. Spay and neuter. It's all about sterilization. And really, when it comes down to this community, it's an economic issue. Well, you say value as companions, but why are you differentiating between the two? Dogs have behaviors that are expressed when they're fertile that can be resolved by sterilization that make them easier companions. Ah, okay, um, gotcha. And we also recognize that, look, if you go out to dinner and you drive past a dog running down the sidewalk, you, you probably are not gonna make your reservation. You're gonna stop, you're gonna say, we gotta find that dog, we gotta look on Craigslist, we gotta take a picture, we gotta get him up, and you may not ever get to dinner. You saw a dog, and it was digging in the trash, and then... And you stopped, right? So you're going to the same, you know, you're driving by, here's three cats by the dumpster. Do you even pause in your conversation? No pun intended about pausing. We are not cat people. We're not cat people. <laughs> so cats and dogs are different. They and have... So the strategies are different. So for cats, we've put together a, our coalition of animal shelters in Portland, including the Portland Veterinary Medical Association, a targeted spay neuter program that helps people who are on public assistance get their cats spayed and neutered. It's economically viable and incredibly successful. In six years, we've dropped the cat population coming into our shelters by 50%. Should people leave food out for cats who stop by their house who seem hungry? Well, you know, chances are that cat's visiting six houses, <laughs> and three of them will say it's their cat. Uh, but if that cat gets an abscess or a limp, chances are maybe only one of them is gonna take him to the vet. And that's the difference. Your dog gets a limp, you're on the phone. I gotta get him in, I gotta see you today. If something's wrong with my dog. Um, cats, we have a much different perspective on ownership and responsibility for. It's a wild animal relationship versus it's a domestic animal. And when we domesticated them, that's the trade-off. We promise to take care of you for your life as opposed to, well, See if he's still limping in the morning. I'm gonna, we're going to ask you some philosophical dog versus cat questions here. And I All know right. you probably don't want to take a stance, but you're doing well. amazing work for both. So <laughs> speak as candidly as you can. Which one do you like more? In my house, I have a cat and I have a dog. That doesn't answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I have to say, I, uh, when I started my work in animal, animal sheltering 35 years ago, I was a dog person. Uh, but now that I share my home with a cat, I really appreciate their athleticism, 
their agility. They're way smarter than we ever give them credit for. I'm tearing up over here. <laughs> oh, you're so not tearing up. <laughs> okay. Uh, but when we went for a walk this morning, the dog came with us and the cat stayed home. Yeah, that tells it all. No, okay. I, I just read a, a meeting with a researcher at Oregon State University who has written a very provocative paper that cats might make better search and rescue animals because their sense of smell is so much more evolved than dogs, and they can be trained. A woman laughed and said, wild thing out of the wild woods, go back to the woods again. We have no more need of either friend or servant in our cave. Cat said, I'm not a friend, and I'm not a servant. I am the cat who walks by himself, and I wish to come into your cave. Then the woman laughed and said, you are the cat who walks by himself, and all places are alike to you. You are neither a friend nor a servant. You have said it yourself. Go away and walk by yourself in all places alike. My name is Kristen Vitali Shreve. I'm a PhD candidate in the Human-Animal Interaction Lab at Oregon State University, and I currently study cat behavior, cat cognition, and the human-cat bonds. So you approach it from a scientific perspective, but you also clearly love cats, which is something mm -hmm. we sort of find hard to relate to because we're not cat people. Nope. I love cats. Okay, one of us is a cat person. What kind of stuff happens at the lab? Uh, well, a lot of what we do is looking at the bond between the animal and the owner. And so I specifically look at cat-human interactions, but we also do a lot of work with dogs, as well as other species uh, like wolves and foxes. And actually last term we worked with pigs. One test we do is called cognitive bias. And so this is one where we're trying to look at that animal's underlying affective state. So basically, are they an optimist or a pessimist? Do they view the world um, with the glass half full or half empty? How we do this is we teach them on one side of the room, they'll always be rewarded. And on the other side of the room, they'll just be ignored. And we do this over and over until they're consistently approaching that person who's rewarding them more often. Then we stick someone in the middle, so this person is ambiguous and they're not sure, will they reward me or not? And we see how long it takes them to approach that person. So the person in the middle of the room is neutral and then you're using that sort of ambiguous person to figure out whether the cat is an optimist or not? Correct. Some of the cats are optimistic, some of the cats are pessimistic, and some fall right in the middle. And so a lot of the data we're collecting is showing this, this variability within cats. And I think there are a lot of cats who are independent cats, but there's also a lot of cats who are super social. And so you just see that same kind of gradient of sociability as you see in other populations as well. It is really the first study that's been done conducting a formal preference assessment in cats, but also on an applied sense, this is something shelters could just do themselves. They could stick a cat in the room and follow the same basic, basic methods that we did and see, okay, this specific cat most prefers interacting with a catnip toy. Huh. So that's the enrichment we're going to give them while they're in the cage. From your study, I read that there was only one cat that preferred the catnip. Yeah, that cat was kind of our little oddball in the group. <laughs> it sounded like most cats actually prefer to hang out with us humans. Right, yep, that's what we found that the majority did. Cats, in my mind, 
I've always thought of them as sort of wild animals that we coexist with. In stories, the cats are the last to domesticate. Mm -hmm. Cats seem to be sort of standing side by side man, but never in service of man. But you're proving that to be a bit of a myth, and you're showing that cats can be trained. I think one interesting thing, especially about animal training, is that a lot of these learning principles that we use for dog training, so like clicker training and positive reinforcement, which is just giving the animal reward once they've done a behavior, all of these things can be used in a wide variety of species. And actually, we consider these learning principles universal among all species unless proven otherwise. We train cats the exact same way we would train dogs and the same way that we trained the pigs last term. The biggest thing that is different between species is then finding what rewards that individual within that species is motivated to work for. We found the majority of those cats preferred social interaction. And so during training, then if the cat sits, we can praise it and pet it. And that in itself could be enough of a reward to train that behavior. Did that surprise you? Um, it wasn't necessarily surprising to me because I've been training cats for the past few years and this was kind of something our lab has already switched over to. We had originally tried using just food, but they just weren't approaching the bowls. Um, so what we ended up doing was changing to the humans who would either pet or not pet them. It seems like there's a lot less compassion for cats out there in the world than there is for dogs. A lot of jokes that they're Expense, the cucumber cat meme and YouTube videos of yeah. cats being scared. Does the work that you do help that? Yeah, I, I hope so at least. But a lot of times you'll see like a negative spin on the cat research. With my stuff, for example, a lot of people were kind of shocked by this. Like, I, I don't believe it. There's no way that the cats are going to choose the humans over the food. But I think that that kind of is part of the reason that this field has been stagnant for so long. Mm -hmm. is because if people are thinking cats aren't social and cats don't care about their owners, well, why then should we study social behavior in the cat-owner relationship if it doesn't exist? Vicious circle. It kind of chases its tail, so to speak. If you think that cats don't care, then we're not going to study the relationship. Exactly. And then we won't find any evidence of it. And I think also the danger is to compare them directly to dogs. For example, another study that was looking at vocal recognition in cats found that cats display higher orienting response to their owner's voice compared to a stranger's voice. Mm -hmm. But unlike dogs, they're basically just orienting their body to their owner, um, but not approaching. And so the media outlets were like, see, your cat hears you calling, but doesn't care. <laughs> but, um, which, and, you know, it is funny, but I think, again, you're, you're kind of interpreting a lot of the behavior. And whoever said approaching was the primary behavior for being called. What if we just... You're such a cat person. Yeah. If you're calling your friend or your animal, how do you interpret a cat turning its head and not coming? If the scientific name for the behavior is affil affiliative behavior, is that right? Yeah, affiliative behavior is just anything like that strengthens the bond between two individuals. So approaching could definitely be something like that. So approaching is the affiliative mm -hmm. behavior. And usually when you call your animal, you're wanting to be close to it. Maybe, maybe cat people don't. If dogs come over when you call and cats just turn their head, well, how else can right. you interpret that? Well, and I think this is something we're finding a lot out of our lab is just the experience of these species is different. And so if we as a community train our dogs to come when called, but we don't train our cats to do that, 
And then when we test them, we see, oh, the majority of cats don't approach, but the majority of dogs do. We can't really interpret that as necessarily a species difference, but maybe an experiential difference. So we've made cats the way they are by reinforcing our own expectations of them. Personally, when I try to understand a cat or become friends with a cat, I inflict my own sense of cuteness on the animal. And then I read one of the studies that you cited about aloe rubbing. And so many of the cute behaviors that I was starting to find charming about a cat, well, it turns out they're just trying to spread their scent glands on me. When so much of what animals do in general is instinctive, how does this all work out in terms of friendship? I would say first that even if the base of the aloe rubbing behavior is to leave a scent, um, they're still choosing to engage in that behavior with specific individuals. So the way I see aloe rubbing is, is more just a social behavior, something like hugging or shaking your hand. Um, it's, it's just a way for the cat to display security within a space. And scent marking for cats is just a naturally soothing thing. I studied a colony of cats for my master's, and we saw a lot of social behaviors that were displayed between these individuals. And again, they were only displayed towards certain preferred associates while other cats were completely ignored or only got aggressive behaviors. Do dogs aloe rub too? Or is this just that they want to scratch themselves? <laughs> I know that they don't have the, the typical aloe rub pattern that we see in cats. But scent marking and detection is really important in dogs. And I know you'll see a dog run up behind another dog and sniff their behind. So they definitely do collect these olfactory cues from one another and probably are using it in the same way to decide who to interact with. But I don't know of a specific scent marking behavior dogs do besides maybe just rolling around in the ground or something. Our dog has some very specific things that I, I'm pretty sure are scent related. He rubs his face in a certain way on you when he's excited. And then when, after he eats, he does a certain thing with his mouth and come rubbing it on his favorite people. But right. with cats, I've read that there were five mm -hmm. types of pheromones just in the face alone. A lot of them have to do with that scent marking behavior. Um, but one pheromone is specifically used on s spots around the home, um, and so they do have different purposes, but we don't really know much about the conditions under which these pheromones are produced in dogs. We know that they have an ear gland that only produce scent in dominant dogs. Huh. So there could be something similar in cats, but there's really not been a whole lot of research into it. I don't believe that three of the pheromones have even been researched at all. Huh. So there's still not a lot we um, know about this kind of stuff. Look where cats came from. They were marks of the devil. If your black cat crossed your path, you were ensured bad luck. I mean, they were Satan's beasts. So they really have a long way to come. <laughs> the cat as the underdog thing makes me feel a little bit more empathy towards them as well. Especially with black cats, we have vilified them. And yet they have guarded our food stores against rats and mice. We still use them. I had a client call the other day. I was like, I need some barn cats. I'm like, oh, what's a barn cat? Is it, is it a, no. A cat that catches mice in the barn. Maybe. <laughs> yes, but my question is, is he going to get veterinary care? Is he still going to get food? Who's going to watch out for him? And You're thinking of the cat, not the farmer. Exactly. Yeah. That's my but job. That's your job. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> I was line 14 on the job description. <laughs> so, <laughs> that you wrote? Uh, yeah, that I wrote. <laughs> I will catch mice when I am in the cave for always and always and always. But still, I am the cat who walks by himself and all places are alike to me. One of the more poignant stories is of a U.S. Armed Forces veteran in Afghanistan doing his tour of duty, and the only thing that keeps him sane is the cat who keeps coming into the tent. It's the cat that keeps him grounded. But when his tour of duty was done and he went to come back to the United States, the prohibition can't bring the cat. There was a big outcry. The cat eventually comes back to the United States and reunited with him, but that's his anchor point to make sure that he has a place to keep grounded with society, it's because of the cat. Animals are completely giving of their love. It's unconditional. They don't judge us. They're always there for us. You can be gone five minutes or five hours and your dog is still happy to see you when you get home. There's health benefits. Our blood pressure goes down when we're petting a dog or a cat. If you have an animal, you're more likely to live longer. You're gonna get up in the morning and go for a walk. You might see other people. There are reason to live for a lot of folks who don't have any other family members. You could ask me a different way. I always way. thought that the reason they were always so excited, even if you were only gone 10 minutes, was because time seemed to take a lot longer for them. I'm, you know, I take the opposite view. I don't think they have much of a sense of time. You know, you, it's really, if you're gone a short amount of time, that dog is still just as happy. You, you said what good it does to have a pet. Uh -huh. But when people come in here, they may have a specific desire to have a pet that may not fit some of those uh, overarching mm -hmm. benefits. They, uh, like our farm. clients may be looking for a pet for their own pet. They may be looking for a buddy because their job has changed, they work long hours, and for some people, humans just aren't there. And animals may be the difference between a good life, an okay life, or no life. Okay, so here's an interesting personality trait about our dog that I don't understand. Um, maybe you should explain it. It's a little embarrassing. Um, our dog, Julie, humps me a lot. I don't think I've ever been humped by him. I have been humped by him a lot. <laughs> Why is he always going after you, Vern? I don't know. We're all here. Dana's actually... I don't say no to him. Well, what about Dana? I don't say no, because I have no need to. <laughs> so, recently, Dooley had a stroke. He, we went down, and we thought he was a goner, and he just laid around for a couple of days. He didn't eat, he didn't want to get up, he didn't want to go outside. But since then, he's come back, and he has a couple new behaviors. Nope, he's always humped me this much. No, he likes to play with a toy now. <laughs> he never cared about toys, and now he cares about the donkey. <laughs> and also, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but Dooley, who's almost 14 years old, had learned a new trick. To speak. Why is it that we want to teach our dogs to speak. So they're more entertaining. To us? Yes. I think it's because we want to see them do things that we can do. And uh, to have them learn how to actually speak, like, hello, my name is Dooley, that would be amazing. Their brain is not connected to their vocal cords in the same way.
So in case you didn't pick up on it earlier in the episode, I'm not a big fan of cats. I don't get them. But dogs, I get. I've had long, deep relationships with several of them. When you love a dog, his stench doesn't get to you. You start to love the sounds that he makes when he's dreaming, when he's eating, when he's drinking out of the toilet. That's something that we haven't been able to break duly of. In his bonus days, or months, or years, I want to understand him better. So a friend tells me I should go talk to one of these animal communicators. It's not really something I can see myself doing, but I do it anyway. Girls. And and Dooley, um, we're going to go talk to an animal communicator on Monday. Cool. You know what she does? She communicates with animals and claims to be able to read their thoughts. Exactly. Wow. So um, she asked if we would prepare for this meeting by generating a list of questions that you guys would like to ask Dooley. Okay. That sounds very fun. Okay, so let's generate that list. What do you want to ask him? Um, what's your favorite type of tree? <laughs> Why do you like chasing squirrels and cats so much? What's your favorite color? What's your favorite number? Is there any plant you particularly like peeing on? <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, awesome. What do you usually... What's one of the dreams that you sometimes dream? I always wonder what he's doing when he dreams. Yeah, I do too, because he's always like moving his legs. He seems like he's a little bit distressed in his dreams. What does he want to have happen when he dies? I want to ask him things about his emotional state of being. Is he happy? Yeah. Is there something missing that we could provide him in his last... Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, Michelle Hawk is the animal communicator that we made time with because we wanted to explore this whole thing about animal communication. How do you think she does it? Maybe she has a special power to read um, minds of animals once, once she gets them to think human thoughts. Interesting. Okay. I'm skeptical of animal communicators, you guys. i got to tell you right off the bat, I'm skeptical. But I wanted to do it anyway because it's such a different perspective than my own. What do you guys think? Do you think that she's actually able to read the thoughts of an animal? Maybe. Maybe. What if I told you that she charges $100 to visit with you for 15 minutes and to read your dog's mind? Would that affect how you think of whether she's legit or not? She actually can do it because and it might be hard would be hard because the price is so high yeah yeah the psychology of price setting what if she only charged a dollar to do it probably not exactly real why because reading an animal's mind probably wouldn't be that easy that you would only oh well she charged a dollar can you think of a way that it would actually be possible physically to read a dog's mind you might look on its face or its movements or like its ears. Yeah. Well, actually, she does most of her readings over the phone. You call her up with your dog at your side. She needs a picture of the dog. You, she needs your credit card number. And then she tells you what the dog is thinking. What do you think of that? But she, the dog's not there. Oh, well, then I don't think she can read animals' minds. Does she actually do that? Yeah. Yeah. You send her a picture of your dog through the email, and then you call her, and she spends 15 minutes talking to you. It's $100, and she tells you what your dog is thinking. In the photo? 
Well, no, in right now. She'll tell you what the dog that's sitting next to your side is thinking. That's impossible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why? Obviously, some people believe in it because people pay her to do it. We're going to, in fact, pay her to do it. Oh, don't, Daddy. Yeah. But it's, it's, I'm trying to be open-minded, and it's in the spirit of entertainment and education. Uh, I've spent $100 on dumber things. Like what? what? <laughs> um, one time I bought tickets to a Bruce Springsteen show, and I brought a woman who didn't even like Bruce Springsteen or have any idea about his music, and it was kind of a drag. She sat on her hands the entire time, like she had no soul. Can you imagine going to a concert, rock and roll concert, just sitting there and not reacting? That's usually kind of what I do. No, it's not. You dance around and cheer. Not all the time. Well, well I'm not buying you Bruce Springsteen tickets then. So there's actually a lot of dumber things that I've spent money on. And in fact, the animal communicator ended up being pretty cool in an unexpected way. We talked for an hour, and the whole time Dooley's head was on her lap. This is Michelle Hawk. So usually you don't do these in person, usually you you do them over the phone? It depends. Uh, for their 15-minute sessions, I don't usually do those in person just because then, you know, it's me traveling somewhere for a 15-minute conversation that we can have just as easily over the phone. I work with a lot of animals in various stages of the transition process. So as animals are maybe nearing the transition point, you know, people have a lot of information coming at them from all sources. People hear from their vets one thing, they hear from their friends, they hear from their family, and so they're looking everywhere but at the animal themselves. So my best advice is always, well, let's ask your dog how your dog is feeling and ask them if they're ready to go or what they need to help feel okay in their bodies. And it's a very beautiful, very powerful moment in time that I try to make myself available for on the human end as well so that they can get the most out of the experience and be present completely for the amazing journey of their animal. So on this show, the skeptical me has come into contact with a lot of belief systems that are completely contrary to my rational scientific background. But when you really connect with a subject matter, and when something is presented with sufficient strident drama, some part of you starts to want to believe it. I've got a name for this. I call it the X-Files syndrome. It's when my skepticism steps aside because of some emotional intensity, or at least really powerful presentation. Actually, before you tell me any more about him, I'd rather hear from him. Oh, okay. So this feels Great. like a segue into speaking with Dooley directly. Do I just be quiet? Yep. Okay. Just be quiet for a second, and I will ask you to interject information, participate as necessary. So before we begin with any questions, I always like to tune in with a body scan, and he can share whatever is first and foremost on his mind and what's coming up in his body. Things feel a little bit slow to me, like sluggish. The body scan pretty much matches up to what my vet's notes and my own personal observations are, but all in acupuncture terms, like not enough heat in the blood, etc. I do wonder about his collapse from last week. Do you have any questions for him based on that health scan, the body scan? Yeah. I'd like to know if he's aware of what happened to him last Thursday. 
he he is aware that something happened and something was wrong when I'm asking him what his experience of it was he kind of checked out and so he doesn't have a lot of information about what was going on for him at the time I'm feeling so I'm so that was from his lived experience I'm asking can we zoom out a little bit more and get some higher self perspective like it wasn't quite a stroke it wasn't exactly a stroke it was something to do with his heart and it was safer for him not to be in his body for a little while I'm hearing he could have left then and he almost did he actually did step out a little bit but he didn't leave entirely and then I'm hearing you know some deciding factors took place and he came back into his body where do you think the essence of him goes at these moments or at death how would you describe it goes that implies a physical location and that is inherently impossible to well but not in his body so it's yeah. not that physical location so it it leaves the physical world or that is a long conversation about the nature of the universe and quantum physics and you know all that is but inherently my understanding of transition as my animal clients have described it to me is the stepping out of the body and returning to who you truly are when we are no longer in physical form and we are purely energy we return to our infinite nature i would say animals are a little bit better about this than humans actually a lot better about this than humans they retain a lot of that knowledge while they're still in their bodies we as humans have so much programming in the way to keep us from accessing that information that separates us from ourselves as divine embodied beings. Animals don't have those same filters in place. He knew that it was possible for him to leave at that time. He says, I would have been okay, but he said it would have been really devastating for you. And he says, I, I would never want to do that to my dad. I would absolutely never want to leave my dad hanging in doubt, wondering, you know, what the f happened? He said, that would be terrible. I would absolutely hate that. And he says, you don't like surprises. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to give you that kind of surprise. That would be feel really bad to me. And he says, it also wouldn't be consistent with yours and his relationship is you tell each other everything. Like you have a really good communication. And he's like, I would never want to leave you hanging like that with all these unanswered questions. He says that goes against everything that we've talked about. You and him have agreements about sharing. One of the, the things that he has supported you with is like living authentically in the heart space. We're gonna get to the answer of which is his favorite color. I asked Michelle if our pets ever got tired of being our confidants listening to us all day long, as Dooley has had to do for me. He says, I do listen to you all day long and never get tired. And he says, he also tells you things too. And you do hear him. He says, yes, you do. I know you're, <laughs> he says, I feel you kind of questioning that right now. Like I see you, dad, going, mm, what, I don't know. what kinds of things? Because yeah. I'm not sure where some of my thoughts come from. What, what types of things? Um, the, so he yeah. says, he came into your life to support you in living authentic heart space. Um, he feels you have a question about that. He's like, yes, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I admit my skepticism was dominating the conversation a little bit, but 
we explored Dooley's inner life a little bit more, and I actually started to get sucked in. Um, I have a lot of questions from the girls. Mm -hmm. um, what is he dreaming about when he's dreaming? Mm, Can right. you tell that it's a dream? He does know the difference between, you know, he is able to tell. He can identify what dreams are, yes. He says he gets to do things in his dreams that he can't do in his body anymore. And that is really lovely for him. There's a little bit of almost wistfulness, you know, when waking up of like, oh yeah, you know, I was having a great time, like running around and doing whatever. And okay, yeah, that's right. My body isn't super comfortable with that anymore. But he's not too bummed about it. It's just kind of like, eh, yeah, okay, well, at least I still get to do this in dreamland. A lot of barking, though, and I always worry that he's distressed. How how no. can I get... No, it's he's just... Fine. But he's, it sounds just... The, it's the filter of the sleeping... Yeah, no, it's like fine. It's just, you know, him... Yeah, he's like, no, no, no. That's like, he says, I don't have bad dreams. Wow. Yeah, he's Well, that's a relief. Yeah, don't worry about it. You don't have bad dreams. Nope. He's like, how <sighs> could funny. I? You know, he says, I've got a full heart. I've had amazing things happen in my life, and I'm a happy guy. Why would I have bad dreams? Okay, this is something that I really wanted to hear. I'm happy to hear it. So I really wanted it to be true. Does the dog know what it's like to miss somebody? Is there anybody that he misses, human or, or animal? He says he does know what it's like to miss somebody, but his relationship with, with missing somebody is different from yours. He's listing a couple of different examples to me. So, you know, he's saying like, oh, my dad might be referencing this. Um, did he have a dog sibling? Only for the first six months or so that yeah. I had. Yeah, he, he's telling me he had a dog sibling. What was her name? Medford. Medford. He's saying, absolutely, I remember her. What kind of dog was she? A pound dog. Like brown and white. Just brown. Uh, did he have a dog friend when he was younger? Brown and white splotchy looking dog. Don't know. I, I adopted him when he was about 18 months old. Okay. Cause I'm hearing, I'm feeling like a, a dog friend, like brown and white splotchy, and it feels like a boy. There, he says, ask me the real question. There's a, a question <laughs> under what you're saying. He's like, no, come on. What's the core? Dad? Well, we've had a lot of changes. Yeah. And I, and I kind of wonder what stands out to him. Mm -hmm. um, he's weathered every change you could see, you know, with family changes and girls getting older and uh, divorce. Um, yeah. Business changes. If he is going to say goodbye, if there's people he wants to say goodbye to, or... There, we're getting to the core of the question. He's saying, okay, my dad wants me to tell him how my heart works. That's what he is pulling out of your question. He says his relationship with missing somebody is different from yours. Because with yours, he has witnessed in you a sense of loss. He doesn't feel that. He doesn't feel the sense of loss. It's not like, oh, this person or this dog is now gone from me. He says it doesn't work that way. So yeah, they might not be physically present in his life anymore in or in the same way or the same capacity, but he says it doesn't mean that he is not still deeply connected with them. And because remember, he is the infinite overflowing heart of authentic, compassionate self. He has plenty to go around. And he says, no love is ever lost. He says, I don't miss people the same way that you do. And I have seen you miss people. I have seen you be deeply sad and deeply in pain and deeply grieving these connections and relationships. He says, I've never done that because I don't view it as a loss. There is nothing lost in love. Dewey 
sitting here as I'm editing this right now. Um, and at this moment, he's craning his neck and looking me right in the eye. He has this way of feeling it when things get heated or when, when things get hard or difficult. And while normally he's pretty ambivalent and kind of does his thing, when I'm having a hard time grappling with something, he always just stares at me. Or maybe he's just hungry. Um, oh, the girls had some questions. Um, what is his, uh, what's his favorite color? Does he have a favorite color? Uh, he says, I personally don't have a favorite color, but I look good in anything. <laughs> so, yeah, very modest about that. Yeah. What about, um, what's his favorite memory? I'm seeing you sitting by a body of water with him, and it's just the two of you. And it, it looks like either a lake or a river or something, and it's just you're just quiet sitting by the body of water with him. He says, Dad, the times when you can actually get out of your head and just be who you are, that's the best. You can do it. You've done it with me. You do it with me more easily than you do with other people, is that you can just be in your heart, and I just love that so much. True. There's a little voice in my head a little dog voice maybe, who's saying, how can you deny something as therapeutic as this? Um, but before I completely buy into this whole thing, I have to know how she does this thing. How does she hear Dooley's specific words, feelings or images? Is it somehow an actual thing that's really there? The thoughts, like in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, where things get turned into particles and they float over your head and then they rematerialize. Or is it something that's imagined? And how does it work if it's over the phone? Love works over the phone. It's just love. That's how that communication works. But really, I mean, you know what he's feeling, right? You you have your gut instinct or your intuitive spidey sense, right? Mm -hmm. I happen to be fluent in it because I have spent years practicing. So it's like any other skill, any other means of perception. But what about the memories and the words? Do you see them as pictures? Are you familiar with the terms clairvoyance, claircognizance, clairsentience, clairaudience? Vaguely. Okay. Those refer to different means of perception. Would you consider yourself a visual person, for example? Visual, auditory, kinesthetic? Auditory. Auditory, more than anything else. So you learn and receive information auditorily more than other means. Mm -hmm. Same works in the psychic realm. The intuitive psychic equivalent of being an auditory person is being clairaudient, meaning that you receive information like you're hearing it. I do it all, like I said, because I've practiced and because I have spent years and years cultivating these skills. Scientists and skeptics, I apologize. The X-Files syndrome has taken over. But can you put yourself in my shoes and let me go with this for a minute? From my perspective, imagination is intuition in disguise. Imagination doesn't actually exist. It's like we are seeing what is really there on a different plane. When I'm imagining a story, mm -hmm. I'm not inventing it. It's not coming from my brain. It's just something that exists already out there. My personal philosophy would be, yes, that is the case. Interesting. And if you are channeling or translating some story that exists on some level in some dimension and you're putting it in writing. Everything already exists. There's nothing new. That doesn't mean it's less exciting. It doesn't mean it's less creative or less interesting or fantastic. It just means it's coming into a realm that we can see it with our eyes or hear it with our ears. 
So anyone can do what I do. I just happen to be really practiced at it. So if this resonates with you and you want to connect with your pet, according to Michelle, here's how. Animals connect from the heart space. Animals don't live in their heads. Spend some time with your animal. Step away from any distractions and just be with them. And slow down your breath. Visualize bringing your attention down from your brain. And from there, look at your animal through the gaze of your heart while you're being calm in your breath. And notice what you notice. I actually do this. I'm, I'm torn about it because I'm still skeptical. But I used to have outright disdain for this kind of thing. And I totally understand people who still do. But in my current state, I'm mellowing my stance. When I was first stepping into this practice, I felt part of my job was to convince people that animals are empathic, intelligent beings with a purpose all their own. Now, I trust that my message will reach the people who are ready to hear it. And if I have someone challenge me that, oh, what I do isn't real, then I just say, okay, and I don't waste my time. Liz Crane's um, party. Mm -hmm. um, well, he, remember the time that I accidentally stepped on his tail and he bit my big toe? Yep. Right when I walked in, I was like, do you forgive me? His eyes were lowered to the floor and his ears were droopy. And he wasn't greeting other people like that? In his face, he was saying, I'm sorry for biting. I knew somebody once who believed strongly in animal communicators. And she said that there was a great cat in a preserve in Africa named Diablo. And it was a very angry cat. It had been rescued from poachers, and it was given a very safe place to live, plenty of room to move around, a nice little cat house. But it would never come out of its house, and when it did, it would always attack its keepers. It would hiss and was very angry. And at this cat sanctuary, part of the way they were able to help the cats was that tourists would come through. And they didn't do them any good to have this angry cat who would lash out at tourists every time they came near its cage or if it would just hide in its pen all day. So they hired an animal communications expert. And they flew her out from California. And the animal communicator went and listened to the cat. And the cat said that it was angry because it didn't like its name, Diablo. It's Spanish for devil. She said that you have to change his name, and if you change his name, he'll be happy. And the story that I'm told is that after this animal communicator said this, they changed the cat's name, and then the cat was nice. So my question to you is, how an African cat knows the Spanish word for devil, or even hears people calling him Diablo because nobody really talks to the cat, how did this work? Is there any possibility that this is valid or scientific? Did she really see the cat? Yes, yeah, she, she actually went and it wasn't over the phone. She went to spend time. Did she with the, pet him? I don't think she pet him because I think he was still too angry. Okay. Good questions. But how could this? How could she know that the cat didn't like being called Diablo? And how would an African cat know the Spanish word for? Devil. I have no idea. Postulate something. Maybe. Posit. Maybe he somehow was taught how to read and saw the sign that said his name and what it meant. You think that's possible? Maybe the only difference between animals and humans is that they can't really talk, but they can read, maybe? I think there's actually been studies done where if you show certain symbols, animals will respond. I mean, they definitely recognize what 
uh, their food bowl looks like. So why couldn't they recognize, say, what a stop sign looks like and, and what to do when they come to a stop sign? You can train a dog, for example, to go to a certain shape and to act a certain way if it sees that shape. It's basically exactly like reading because it's reading shapes. But that's different than the dog communicating thoughts that we can understand in words, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Growing up, my favorite Rudyard Kipling story, the just-so stories about the animals, how the camel got his hump and all that, my favorite one was the one we've been hearing little bits of, the cat who walked by himself. It actually scared the crap out of me, even though it was read by Sterling Holloway, the voice of Winnie the Pooh. In the last couple years, I spent quite a bit of time searching for the old record. But unlike others of its era, it's never been re-released. The only other recording of any quality that I could find of The Cat Who Walked By Himself is one in which Boris Karloff reads the thing. Spooky. Strangely, Boris changed the gender of the cat. I am the cat who walks by herself, and all places have alike to me. I will not come. It got me thinking. I'm a dog person, but I always get into relationships with cat people. So, to figure this out, I visited my friend Courtney. You've heard her on the show before. I asked her some questions about my own feelings on cats and cat people, and it went a little deeper than I bargained for. As soon as I stepped in her door, a young cat that I just met Scout. tried to climb my leg, sinking claws into my thigh like I was a sofa. <gasps> oh my goodness. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> She's very interested in men. Men. And here's the thing. I mean, I'm pretty far along in this episode, and I can't give the cats their due. And I feel like I can't speak with any kind of emotional authenticity about why cats are important. Um, <laughs> or good. <laughs> or good in any way. I know. You're a dog person, but you keep going for cat people. Bam. She's talking about my relationships with women. And I'm actually willing to go there after we talk about dogs versus cats for a minute as it relates to Courtney. I can relate to the, to the way that cats appear to view the world. I have grown up um, anxious my whole life. <laughs> Do cats and, seem anxious to you? Well, a lot of times they're skittish. I mean... But when I walked in, a cat tried to crawl up my leg literally the minute I got here well, that's not skittish so what I realized a few years ago was I had always thought oh I'm just a pessimist but I was diagnosed with sort of a generalized anxiety disorder and what anxiety does is it causes you to think that things aren't going to go well right like over and over and over again and so I think that these giant ruts in my neural pathways came in telling me over and over and over again that things aren't going to go well so of course I became a pessimist. Of course I became kind of a dark person. Yeah, okay. And I think I adore having a dog around, and I am inspired by their boundless joy, but I can't relate to it. Huh, yeah, okay. Like, I have trouble connecting to what it would be like to, to be that way. At the same time, I actually think that it would be good for me to have that in my life every day, but I'm more comfortable <laughs> with, with these cats. cats. Like, well, I don't expect anything of you, and you're you're not letting me down, <laughs> you know? I don't expect you to... And, and if someone says, we're having this discussion in our house, do we get a dog or a cat? I always say, well, what's your self-esteem like? <laughs> because I believe that if you have just bottom feeder, low self-esteem, 
get a dog. And every day you walk into the house, you are the center of the universe. That dog tells you with everything about him that you are the most extraordinary thing that has ever been on this earth. Worshipping. Exactly, exactly. And it just sort of chips away at that low self-esteem, kind of hikes it up a little bit like some furry suspenders or something. And, And if you have a giant ego, if you're possibly a narcissist, get a cat or two and then every day when you walk into the house and they treat you like a piece of garbage so this is your suggestion the prognostication <laughs> not a real analysis of the difference between cat people it's and dog more people. like my kind of advice to people i essentially say like if you've ever had a self-esteem problem don't get a cat which is funny because i've always had a self-esteem problem but at the same time you know we have this friend in common tisha right yeah um her name was tisha helgerson she was this extraordinary musician and in at least in my experience Tisha didn't laugh that easily and when Tisha did laugh if I said something that made Tisha laugh I felt like the funniest person in the world yeah I felt and, good um, Viv is about to jump on your back no oh, she's good. Um, <laughs> I was ready right but, but I think that there's the same thing with cats it's a predominant disposition in humans to not want to be a member of a club that would have them as a member Uh and to be wanting that which they cannot have and that may be the affection of an animal or maybe a friendship that's really difficult as Mm -hmm. you said is there something in human nature like i still love dogs even though it's unconditional love and they're an easy audience but with humans i don't love that in humans i want a a more difficult person to choose me and to make me feel like i've said something worthwhile to them Uh You know, part of it is the game of it, and I think that as you as you age, it's less attractive to you because it's really exhausting. Um, <laughs> I do joke about the cat thing. They really don't give a crap about you, but the thing is, there's really nothing like having a cat as you're sleeping come up into the crook of your neck and curl up and listening to them purr, which is just unbelievably loud. It feels like you're getting affection from a difficult person. Now we launch into some kitchen conversation confidential therapy and if you pay attention you might save a few bucks on therapy first of all i learned about the three basic ways that people do relationships one is secure and that's just when you were raised by two parents who were always there for you and you never questioned that people are going to be there for you so when you're in a relationship you're absolutely secure of that relationship and you're fine Mm -hmm. um there's anxious relationship style those are people whose parents were sometimes there and sometimes not and so they're never quite completely on balance great for those people to be with secure people right because they can reassure them makes sense and then there's avoidant people and avoidant people People were raised by people who were really not around. They have no faith that anyone will ever be there for them. And what's scary about an avoidant person is that they believe that they want an attachment. They want to be near to someone, but in actuality, they're terrified of it. And so they're constantly doing this thing where they're drawing people in and then pushing them away. The, of course, the absolute worst person they can be with is an anxious person. So, so, so I think I've known you for a long time. I've seen you through some relationships, and I think you're an anxious attachment style. Maybe you have some odd kind of Um, I can't wait to hear the rest of the sentence. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, just, I'm sure you'll probably disagree with me on this, but I think you thrive a little bit on chaos. I'm attracted to cat-like people and to avoidant people. Mm -hmm. I also wonder 
with you that maybe you're thinking, I can handle this, I can turn this into something. Would I be the type of person who might try to convince a woman to appreciate Bruce Springsteen, to behave appropriately at a Bruce Springsteen concert? <laughs> Absolutely. So if I took a woman to a Bruce Springsteen concert and she just sat on her hands uh -huh. and, and didn't express any emotion or enthusiasm or, or anything uh -huh. while everybody around her was hooting and hollering and weeping and laughing, yeah. but, but she was stoic. Uh -huh in a cat-like, ambivalent way. Yes. Is that the type of project that I might... <laughs> well, that to you, I think, was a personal affront. If someone were to do that with you, and especially someone who was supposed to love you, and part of it is, how can you not love me enough to pretend that you love this? <laughs> Please lie. <laughs> exactly. It's just good manners. To, to feign enthusiasm. Well, because this is the thing that you have loved your entire life. I'm going to act mildly more enthusiastic than I really am. Yeah. Right? Okay. Because manners. I want I want you to have a good time watching me have a good time. Do cats ever fake it the way <laughs> dogs do? Because dogs will fake it. They're fawning. They will mm -hmm. implore. They, they act cute. They lay on their backs. They submit. Mm -hmm. They do all sorts of behaviors that are, some would call, manipulative. Yeah. Do, do cats do that? 100%. Absolutely. That adorable easing into your neck, into the crook of your neck and purring, she rolls over and sort but of... But you just use that as an example of your favorite behaviors, your very no. favorite behaviors. <laughs> right, right. Well, sometimes they do it and food's not involved. <laughs> this isn't baking. So, but I mean, relationships with humans are like that too, exactly. right? Exactly, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes we're really excited and sometimes we have to fake it until we get excited. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's weird. I'm dating a person who I think is absolutely secure. But here's the thing, um, and I, I don't know if I'm going to let you use this or not. He doesn't like dogs or cats, really. At one point I was like, I'm not sure I trust you as a person. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he is, is so extraordinary in so many other ways that I'm like, all right, I guess. It's like dating someone without a heart, I guess. You know, in there. So. Does he like Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> yeah. I think he does, yeah. 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 <laughs> and if he didn't, he would pretend just because he loved me. Oh, no, me. I mean, you don't, I know you're not a big Bruce Springsteen fan. I, I, I recognize, like, his importance <laughs> in the canon. And no, I mean, yeah. His importance I would in never the canon. Mind. I would never feel things the same way as people do? I believe so. They certainly feel fear, they feel joy, they feel sadness, um, they certainly feel pain, um, and they feel good. But do they feel fear of the future, worry about politics? I hope not. What are some of the other differences? In some ways animals are better than people. They're more forgiving. I've certainly seen that in cruelty cases where animals have suffered horrific abuse at the hands of their owner, and yet when that person comes in for visitation or in the courtroom, the dog still wags his tail. There have been a few moments in my career where I can think back and say, it was that dog that moved the needle for us. Which it was dog? that cat. Now, give me that story. All right, let's talk about Scabby Ben. 
in the old building. The old building was built in 1939, and it was the cat's meow of shelters way back then. But You're in, full of these puns. <laughs> by 1989, it was done. And so we had too many animals. We had to make tough choices. And if you were over five or you had any kind of health issues, you were euthanized. And here's a dog. He's got only hair on the front half of his body, and he stinks to high heaven. And we would, we would say we're okay with euthanizing him because no one would want it. Scabby Ben. Scabby Ben. The dog had scabs all over him. What did Scabby Ben look like? It wasn't so much what he looked like as what he smelled like, because you smelled him before you saw him. He really <laughs> had a bad skin infection. And a volunteer came to me. Her name's Laura Clink, and she's still a volunteer with us today. Uh, she said, can't we try? Can't I try? With her help, Scabby Ben got hair, and Scabby Ben got a home. And we would have never thought a dog like that would be wanted, was recoverable, eventually adoptable. From then on, we looked at dogs differently. It all came down to, we'd be having this, these discussions, and be like, well, Scabby Ben can find a home. Why can't this dog? Why can't we do this? You have to realize that the capacity of the people who walk in our front door is so much greater, and they might be better than us who work at the shelter, because we think, oh, no one would want it, or I wouldn't want it. But every day, heroes walk in our door, and if you tried to get in our parking lot today... It's full. It's full. It's full today. Weekday morning, 10 a.m. And all 110 spots have clients in them. That's a great thing. We're seeing this incredible campus with an education center and a lab and an accredited veterinary medical school, the first of its kind in the United States. One of the operating facilities has a webcam, so you can watch operations. It's on all the time. Check it out. And send a donation in, too, while you're at it, to organhumane.org. So this veterinary medicine program is something that every veterinarian has to attend. They do a required course here. There's a dormitory behind the center for their housing. There's also a team of officers with badges and law enforcement authority out pursuing the actual work of the Humane Society, which has been going on since 1868. And what is the true mission of the Humane Society? So we're shifting our focus to more what we were founded on, which is animal cruelty and suffering. Huh. Petterer population's been a distraction for the last 60 to 70 years. We've solved that problem. It took us a long time, but our focus is going to shift to what we were originally established to do, which was prevent suffering and defend animals against mistreatment. Until recently, the messaging has been end petlessness, this brilliant slogan that sums up a lot of what we've been talking about. But how to sell people on the idea that it's our responsibility to end cruelty and to help build a more humane world for our animal buddies? I think the messaging is hard. I mean, an adoption message is an easy sell. We've been successful because we've made you smile. And when we talk about animal cruelty, you're not going to be smiling. We have to reach a deeper intellectual level. We have to reach a deeper message that you know, affects you emotionally, but doesn't make you connect bad emotion with the mission of our, and our work. We, we just don't want to go back to the days where, Veronica, how you came to perceive an animal shelter as a scary, sad place was very much a part of our marketing of the past. Hmm. You know, pick one and kiss the rest goodbye. 
and you know, help us save them before we, you know, have to euthanize them. Hurry, we only keep them for three days. That's that not way. an authentic message anymore. No, it's yeah. not, and it is harmless. And that sticky message, prying that loose from our psyche, is really difficult. Now, as we shift focus to animal cruelty. We had to be really careful how we talk about it hmm. so that we don't look like the place where animals are harmed instead of the place where animals are saved. And really, if you ask people why they give, it's about animal cruelty. This is our pet memorial services. We have columbariums and mausoleums for your pet's final resting place. We have a wonderful rose garden here. It looks similar to a human mausoleum to the same sort of Social mores apply. I don't see a field with tombstones. Oh yes, they're over here. If we had upright tombstones, we couldn't mow the lawn, right? But the dogs running around on them. Well, there are no doggy poltergeists. <laughs> that is the trade-off. So um, sometimes dogs come out and use the cemetery as a play yard. Uh, but we have dogs from World War II buried out here. The pet graveyard has been there since 1918, and it's classic. But it's not what we are most excited about. You want to yeah. walk through the shelter? Yeah! yeah. Uh, dogs. How are you? Good, how are you? You sending them home today? All right, you're off to a good start. Some love happening. Come on, this is why, that's why all the windows are clear glass, so you can be inspired. See these people go, oh, he's already getting a look at this kitty. Maybe we should adopt that one. How are you doing, Bob? That was some expert rabbit wrangling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So this is your favorite part of the gathering. Why? It's, what you're looking at is a room that was, many of our rooms have themes, and this is the Egyptian theme. So there is this ornate gold throne that the other day I came around the corner and there was a cat sitting on the throne, as all cats should have, his own throne. Finally, here's a question that me and the girls ask to every guest that we had on this show. It was a mystery to us coming into this, but Sharon's answer is the winner for the most compelling and feasible answer to the impossible age-old question. Why do dogs bark at the mailman? Huge problem. Here's the thing about dogs and mailmen or people come to the door. Somebody comes up, he's in a uniform, he's an intruder, he's already cautious because a lot of mailmen get bit by dogs. I mean, I think if you ask any postal worker, they'll have a story to tell about the dog that bit him. So they're already nervous and dogs can sense that. But here's the thing, the mailman comes to the door, the dog barks and the mailman leaves. The dog just won. So every day that mailman comes, the dog's rewarded for barking because he wins. Hey, I defended the house, victory. But the mailman just went away because he's done giving mail. Explain that to the dog. <laughs> <laughs> so how does the dog feel this this fear that this mailman is nervous or that I'm sad or why do dogs seem to have a sixth sense? Oh, they're masters at the subtlety of body language. The tip of an ear carries one way, the tail posture, is somebody looking in another dog, are they licking their lips, are they standing this way, are they standing a few degrees to one side? This is how they communicate. Uh, they don't need words, they don't need an email to understand a long letter. They're very quick at reacting. Their survival has always depended upon it. We did not take that away when we domesticated them. And all it takes is that one interaction for that dog to say, 
there's something odd with that guy. He comes to the door, he rattles, he shuffles something around. I bark at him because he's weird. He leaves. I've done my job. And it comes again the next day. And the next ah, day. The next day. I you know what? chance for success. Yeah. Is there a cure? I'm curious as to whether you have a magic, a magic pill for this. Oh, it's not so hard. You just have to retrain your dog that when he sees a mailman, he comes to you for that piece of hot dog or reward. <laughs> It's really not rocket science. Dogs are really, you know, a stomach with two ears and a tail. Oh, God. But they will work for a reward, and he just has to be redirected. And we have a class for that. Reactive rover. I think of dogs as more Buddhists. Wise. I think I think as great And we'll leave you with that. You've been listening to Rome School. This is the first of three shows about animals. Check out our website, romeschool.com, and see pictures of other stuff you can't hear through your earbuds. Heck, make a donation, if you can, to Rome School. We're a 501c3, so you can deduct it from your taxes. If you're looking for a chance to share your favorite podcasts with friends or other listeners you haven't even met yet in person, consider having a pod club. Check out this idea at thepodclubs.com. It's book clubs for listeners and a chance to get together with people in person. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think. Ask a question. Do social media stuff with us. Rome School is written and produced by me and my daughters. Production and designed by Lydia Ritchie. Assistant producer Alexis Kenyon has amazing ideas and produced a segment you'll hear in an upcoming episode. Ben Landsverk and I wrote and recorded the music as Wonderly. And we'd like to welcome Kathleen McCabe as our new director of development. Thanks for listening.